Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Brothers and sisters, welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem, except that we're not in Jerusalem, we are still in the Galilee, and we'll be here for a few more weeks. Uh, we're, we're studying the, the uh, epistle to the Galatians uh, in chapter 4, and uh, it's a delight that you can all join us, and thanks for doing so. Uh, please comment uh, on the websites or send emails, and we'll get back to you if there's any questions. Otherwise, just let us know if you're enjoying the study altogether. Now, we know that our Lord is present. We delight in his presence. And so we are going to do a tradition where we pray before we begin. We acknowledge the presence of the Lord. Jennifer, sister, would you pray us in? Father, we just thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you for your word, your instructions that you've given us on how we are to follow and to obey you. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, Yeshua, HaMashiach, to uh complete the process that we might make it to heaven and uh, trust in what you have done for us and, and your provision for a savior. We thank you that you have left your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth. We ask that you would be with the leaders and speakers in this meeting, that um, those who are participants would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and spirits to understand what is being said today. We thank you. Amen. Amen. Okay. So as is our tradition, we uh, give a recap from last week's study where we were in Galatians 4 and we looked at verses 1 to 11, which kind of actually in some commentaries, they say that this is like essentially the halfway point. The next half of the epistle begins to deal with uh, some other parts of the, of, the, of the text, but Paul has essentially already made his point by now. Okay, so here's a summary from our, our discussion, uh, from the notes that I took. <clears throat> a text taken out of context is a pretext, and I can do all things through a text taken out of context. Much commentary and discussion around Paul's epistle to the Galatians has been continually removed from the context. And I personally will continue to refer back to the contextual issues that face the Galatian believers. The issue is not, and I repeat, not that they doubt Jesus is the Messiah. No one is telling them that. The issue is social boundaries within the Jesus movement. That is, the standing and relationship that Jews and Gentiles have, particularly towards the application of the Torah. Are Gentiles who become followers of the Messiah required to become Jews, to be considered equal in status before the Lord? And if not, as they do not in the regular synagogue already, where they are known as God-fearers, that is, Gentiles who believe in the God of Israel and attend regular synagogue follow the prayers, and observe some commandments. Examples in the Bible are Cornelius, Acts 10, but they're still Gentiles. And if not, then what was the purpose of the law for Gentiles in the first place? Paul has argued 
that Gentiles are of equal standing as Jewish people in the Messiah, as are all people, whether they are male or female or of any socioeconomic status. Before the Lord, who made all, all are equal and valued and imputed righteousness by God, not based on works of the law. Thus, having established that the Galatians are indeed true heirs of the promise to Abraham, Paul now elaborates with an example of heirs and slaves. Heirs usually claimed their inheritance upon the death of the guardian or parent. Until then, the child heir was considered having the same status as a slave, minors, and in many cases, women. Paul mentions that the child heir remains under guardianship of tutors until an appointed time. In Roman custom, as the Galatians are Gentile Roman citizens, children from the age of 15 and 16 became adults in a ceremony called Liberia, which occurred every March the 17th. During the Liberia ceremony, the child was adopted into the father's family with all rights and privileges. The term adoption was used even if the child was biologically the father's. In the Jewish world, the appointed time for children to become considered adults vis-a-vis with obligations to the commandments was at age 12 to 13 with a bar mitzvah. Paul goes on to say that not only did we formally operate under a guardian, but further that Gentiles operated in bondage to elemental forces in the world. The Greek worldview considered the material universe to consist of four primal elements of earth, fire, air, and water. Each of these elements had a corresponding persona as a minor deity or some sort of spirit. So they turned these elements into uh, small gods. Qumran scrolls also reveal that Jewish people considered demonic activity to be prevalent in the world and that many Gentiles and unobservant Jews to be, quote, captives to the forces of Belial and to the angel of darkness. 1 Qumran scroll 3, verses 20 to 23. That captivity, that is, to these elemental forces, lasted until the appointed time set by God the Father had arrived, called, in verse 4, the fullness of time. Now, there is a strong sense of God's control in the timing. The guardianship or stewardship of the Torah concludes. The Torah does not go away, nor is it removed from the Bible, not that there was a Bible in the ancient world. The Torah takes its rightful place on our hearts where it always was meant to be. However, its tenure as guardian was now over. The fullness of time was the advent of the Messiah, born of a woman and thus signifying his humanness and born under the Torah to signify his Jewishness. Messiah redeemed both Jews and Gentiles, although when Paul describes redeeming those under the law, it is actually only referring to Jewish people, as the Torah was never imposed upon Gentiles at Sinai. Jewish people are now adopted, as are Gentiles, even though Jewish people already have a relationship with God. 
And this mimics the Roman custom whereby biological children are still referred to as adopted. This is something the Galatians would know and appreciate. Paul then refers to the Galatians as sons, adopted into the household of faith as a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. In rabbinic literature, sonship is defined also not through biological birth, but through behavior. A rabbi could call his students sons if they actually behaved like the rabbi and followed his teaching. Those that did not imitate the rabbi would be dismissed with the words, never knew you. In summary of his argument, Paul then concludes that the Gentiles are indeed adopted sons of Abraham as much as the Jewish people are. This is an elevation of status, part of the context of the issue of Galatians. He then asks the rhetorical question, why then do they seek to return to the slavery of the elemental principles of the world? The elemental principles relate to the Greek worldview and are not demonic powers associated with the Bible. The Bible is not demonic. It is idolatry and idols that host demons behind them and not the word of God. Why downgrade their amazing status in the kingdom of heaven as full heirs under God's grace? Why return to the guardianship of the Torah when you can have the Torah on your hearts and the guardianship of the spirit? Cryptically, Paul adds that the, the Galatians observe some sort of calendar, although he is not specific as to which calendar that is. Some people think this refers to the Jewish calendar, and other commentators argue for the pagan calendar of the Greco-Roman world. Paul does not use any words that appear to reference the Jewish calendar, that is. He does not say Sabbath, new moons, jubilees, or feasts. Paul also continues to participate in Passover in Jerusalem and follows temple customs. I would find this very hypocritical of Paul should he now be referring to the Jewish calendar here in Galatians. The prophets themselves testify that feasts and festivals continue past the advent of the Messiah, with all nations appearing in Jerusalem or Sukkot. While some in our group argued that Paul is indeed referring to the Jewish calendar, I personally agree with those commentators that suggest Paul is referring to the local pagan calendar and its elemental principles behind it. Let us continue to remind ourselves that the Galatians, now believers in Jesus as the Messiah, will continue to meet together for prayer, worship, and reading of the scriptures. Which scriptures? The only ones in existence and available to them. The Greek Septuagint. Within the Septuagint, they will hear Moses, the Psalms, the prophets, and all about the Torah and the Jewish calendar. It is not that these things disappear from their lives. Instead, the scriptures now have extra added value and meaning in the light of the resurrection. So that was a summary from the notes I made from last week. So we will finish the rest of this chapter off. We're going to read the rest of chapter 4, starting at verse 12. And for those that are in podcast land, I'm reading from uh, an ESV, English Standard Version. Not that there's one version that's better than another. So this one is kind of very nice and easy to read. Verse 12 of chapter 4. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. 
you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may not that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could present, be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, uh, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing slave, children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with the children. But Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right. There's a lot there on an initial <laughs> reading. Just the Peshat. Now, this is allegory. It's, it's very, very. Uh, allegory is one of those interesting devices where you have to remember that when you're talking, you're talking about allegory, okay? And not to suddenly take allegory as literal, okay? Sometimes, sometimes we get ourselves confused. But allegory is um, a perfectly acceptable form of biblical interpretation. Uh, Paul's not the only one who uses it. There's a lot of other Jewish guys who do it, particularly in the late Second Temple period. For example, there's a guy called Philo of Alexandria who has a commentary on the Bible, the Torah, where he literally allegorizes the whole lot. He, he can take any, anything in the Bible and turn that into a piece of allegory for you. Guys, what do you think on the basis of uh, an initial reading? What jumps out at you? For me, it's fascinating that these two women are mothers of Jerusalem. I would always think of Israel or something else, but of Jerusalem. And I find that really fascinating. Yeah. I was having a discussion, because uh, as I was studying this during the week, with our little Arab lady who's been here, Muslim, Muslim lady, now a believer. And um, she was saying, you know, you know how Ishmael is always superseded uh, Isaac in their tradition. She was looking at the text in Genesis 
And she says, I don't see how Ishmael can actually be our father as Arabs. And I said, oh, what do you mean? And she said, because Ishmael's mother is Egyptian. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and you go, yeah, I know that. And she goes, but I'm not Egyptian. You don't understand. Egyptian, I'm Arab. Egyptians don't like Arabs. Arabs don't like Egyptians, you know. Okay. So where do you think you came from? She says, we don't have no clue, but it's not Ishmael. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, I, I, I don't know what to say right now um, because I've always grown up thinking Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael. And it actually might not be true. There might be tribes that are, but there's probably a lot of tribes that are not. But anyway, this, this allegory that Paul, Paul paints, well, one, it's very clever. And, uh, and, and, it, and it does say a lot. And he somehow he brings in Jerusalem, uh, heavenly Jerusalem, the sort of idea of the mothership that's up there, that's um, uh, the mother to us all, which is actually a phrase that both Arabs and Jews say uh, in this city. Jerusalem is mother to us all. Very interesting. I think it's interesting if you look at verse 25. Um, I've got the uh, King James. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And I've recently come across people saying that people have made the assumption that Mount Sinai is, is in the Sinai Peninsula, but it's actually in Saudi Arabia. And they connect it with Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And so they feel that if they were looking for protection, they would be going um, towards where they knew it was safe and that they would go actually not that far from Mecca which is where um, uh, Jethro was from. It's interesting that in, uh, in Exodus uh, 17, it says, um, and Jethro heard all the things that God was doing, 18 or whichever one it is. And it's before Mount Sinai, but just about every Jewish commenta commentator in the ancient world asked, what did Jethro hear? Even though the chronology is wrong, they all say he heard the Ten Commandments. He heard God on Mount Sinai. And he went, wow, this is incredible. This is like amazing, real, real instruction about how you're supposed to run a society. I better show up and find out what's going on. Um, although the chronology is actually wrong. But it is interesting. They all ask, what did he hear? And they, they have this idea that, yeah, Jethro is actually quite close to Mount Sinai. He's in the area and um, he hears what's going on. Moses goes up the mountain, and by the time he gets down there, there's his father-in-law who says, gee, it's a bit of a mess here, uh, son. You've got to clean up, and you've got to get yourself a hierarchy. Anyway, it is interesting. It, it, the, the text says it's in Arabia. Anyway, um, that's, it, it, it's, it's allegory. You've got to unpack the allegory, but rem remind ourselves he's still making a point through allegory. Hagar is still Hagar. Ishmael still Ishmael, Isaac still Isaac, and those are still real people. Um, you got to keep those those levels uh, on the side because some communities in today's world interpret the Bible through allegory, and then they only stay in allegory. And oh my gosh, you can start making the Bible say anything you want, and they do. And you scratch your head and go. Uh, I'm really sorry, but I don't know how to call you my brother because you've got this really weird interpretation. I know we're reading the same Bible, but I don't know how you get where you're going, but they do. 
Yes, Aaron, um, very true. It's like when the Bible says um, Judah is a lion, so you don't see Judah as a literal lion. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know it, it's very interesting because if you look in, in Numbers and also in, um, in Deuteronomy, when um, Moses was recapping the, the journey, the stages of the travel through the wilderness, um, and you try to fix where Sinai is from from the Torah, it's never going to appear in um, in Arabia. Yeah, it's never going to appear in Arabia, and um, it it continues to fascinate a lot of persons. That why would um, Paul use this? I mean, Paul knows the geographical location, so. Um, it's believed that Paul is trying to pass a message, which is a very um, traditional for rabbis in that time to use um, some kind of um, allegory to pass their messages. The Midrashim itself boils around two sons of Abraham, and that's where it starts from. And um, then so much emphasis on the women, but actually it came from the sons. And um, it's kind of fascinating to me because when you look at the, the sons of Abraham, um, just like you mentioned, um, one of the, uh, two of the major um, faith based uh, faiths in, in the world, uh, you know, try to polarize along these two lines. And um, it's everybody has its own interpretation of who the real chosen tribes could be. And, you know, um, the Arabs will say, the Islam will say it is uh, Ishmael, and they have a lot of stories to, to back that up. And of course, we know it's, um, um, it's Isaac from the, from the Torah. But one thing I want us to, to look at there is um, the, the two children and how they, they've come to impact the whole world. Um, looking at it from when um, Paul was speaking to the Galatians, there was nothing like um, Islam. So he wasn't trying to speak on Islam or Christianity or any of those. He was actually trying to point out to the people that about the, the, the spiritual and the natural um, birth. That's what he was trying to um, point out there. And he was talking about, you know, the Isaac and the birth of Isaac is the spiritual uh, and um, the Haggai and the birth of Ishmael is the, the natural tendency. And we being um, who we are, naturally, we will be drawn to sin. And we, 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 need, the, we need the spiritual to, to get into the line of God. And I think that's what he's trying to sell to us at the end of the day. Yep, that's definitely one of the major points he's trying to say. Just as a complete side note, in the, in the actual literal text in, in, um, in Genesis, Abraham does send Ishmael away, right? Hagar and Ishmael away. And that seems like not a very nice thing to do, right? Because it's, it's not that God says, quick, get rid of the kid, right? That's actually something that Sarah does. So rabbinical commentaries, early ones, say, you know, this is actually not really nice. We have to fix this. And so the way they fix it, is humans can fix the Bible, right? So we're just going to fix the Bible. Right? They, what they do is they say, well, that wasn't very nice, uh, Abraham. So after Sarah dies, it does say you marry another one. That's actually going to be Hagar. They'll say that, that the Torah, she changed her name and, and then had a whole bunch of kids. And you go, that's lovely, guys. I'm so where, glad. Where did you read it? In the, the Midrashim. I'll send it to you in Tanakhuma. Oh, man. Okay. 
So uh, Tanchuma is very early midrash, and um, and they Katura is Hagar, and they fix it, and you just go, that's that's awesome. But you don't need to fix the Bible, okay? You just let's just let's just wrestle with 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 what Paul says. So here we go. Let's jump in and wrestle with what what Paul is doing, and see how we go. But I, okay. Aaron, I've heard this from um, Orthodox Jews over here. Including the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he used to talk about Keturah being Hagar. Yes, it's a it's a it's an early midrash in Tanchuma. If you study Tanchuma, you get it, but not everybody does anymore. I've been studying Tanchuma for the last couple of years with a few rabbis, and so I actually I really liked Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Just so everybody knows, I think he, he if you ever read a book from his, you'll think, wow, you know. You're great. Why? Why can't you just believe in the Messiah? You're awesome. <laughs> you're, you're like this close to the kingdom, as Yeshua would say. Okay. So Paul says in verse twelve, brothers. Remember, brothers. That's a very loaded term in Jewish tradition. You only call Jewish people brothers, but now Paul is deliberately calling Gentile brothers to describe to them. No, you're the same as me. I I am admitting to you right now, we are the same. They're brothers. I entreat you. Become like me, Ooh, okay. As I've become like you, yeah, hang on. What what should he have said? Do you think Christ become like Christ? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, what are you talking about, Paul? Uh, become like you. Uh, let's let's slap you down for a bit of pride, there, son. Let's get humble. But but what do you think he means by that, guys? In a sense, he's a teacher, so he's setting an example, and we should be we should be examples to other brothers and sisters. Absolutely, Vida. Exactly. We our lives, whoever they should be, whether they are to our children or as Shimshon, as the leader of a flock, to be a leader to a flock, uh, to our neighbors, to our husbands, and to our wives. We should be good examples, uh, empowered by the Spirit. Absolutely. And so, I, I, Paul's not being prideful. He's saying. I am your teacher. I, I brought the gospel to you. I am like your father figure. In fact, he's even going to call them later children. He's got that relationship with them. And so he's saying, come on, come on, look like me, act like me. Why? Because I have become as you. Now, what does that mean? What's the actual issue, remember? What's the problem that our Galatian community are suffering from? People are telling the Gentiles that they're not the same value as Jewish believers. And Paul is saying, no, I'm a rabbi. Dude, I was like the best of rabbis. I mean, you can't fault me for my halakha. But when I was with you, I was just like you. you know, I, was ju- I was just the same as you on that same level. So, uh, so, so, so be like me. And uh, you did me no wrong. Not a hundred percent sure what that that means. Uh, I, I I can't imagine that the Galatian community did him injury per se. Although, when he describes his first encounter, it, it seems like there was the potential for the Galatians to actually not receive him and actually cast him away, which they did not. Which they did not do. He says in the next verse. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. This is another little piece um, of self-disclosure. Paul doesn't do this very often in his epistles. In fact, this is 
this is pretty much the only one where he does a lot of self-disclosure. Something occurred to Paul that gave him some sort of physical injury and or physical condition that led him to go to Galatia. Uh, any ideas what, what he's um, talking about? Are you meaning legalism? Uh, no. Um, read, um, see, there's, no, there's nothing in the book of Acts that says something, something happened and I ended up in Galatia. Though there is in Acts 14, we turn to Acts 14, verse 19, there is an incident which might shed some light, but it's not definitive proof. Acts 14, 19 says, but uh, some Jewish people came from Antioch and Iconium and having pers persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposedly that it was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, they went on with Barnabas to Derby. And so as part of his, what they call the first missionary journey, he has this incident where he's beaten black and blue, probably not feeling so crash hot. And it could be that that's the condition that he enters the community in Derby, uh, in uh, Galatia, because he's moving in to the Galatian communities. He, he needs a place to convalesce and relax and recover his strength. It's possible. I, I, I don't know. Technically, though, according to the Acts, in terms of like its chronology, he's actually already in Galatia when this event occurs. So still, still it's, not, it's not definitive proof. Okay. Paul is saying that he had some physical condition that, that led him to go where he, had, where he was. It's, it wasn't perhaps his choice to go there, but it is definitely what happened. And then through his physical deformity, through the problem, he actually then preached the gospel. Now that can open up a whole gambit of teaching for us. What would be some of the implications? Not to focus on our problems, but to just focus on the Lord. His, it doesn't matter what we're going through, just praise him, and, which is hard. It, it, that's very hard, yes. It's always easy to talk like that when you're not going through the problem, yeah. And it's always easy to tell somebody else who's going through the problem, well, the Lord will use this, and the other person's going, well, I wish he wouldn't. You know, this hurts right now. <laughs> our, our little lady friend downstairs, was telling me today, she says she's feeling really good and she's dancing and she's really happy and uh, she loves Jesus and she doesn't, she knows that this is going to be used for good. And then she says, but tomorrow I might cry. Yeah, you probably will. And that's okay. We'll cry with you. I can't promise you it's going to get any easier. I just know that, that in the future, you're going to grow up to be very beautiful. God's going to do something amazing. But right now, we just need to cry. But something happened for Paul. Some, who, who, no idea. It was, it was not good. It was a physical condition. And uh, he ends up in Galatia, and then and, and he preaches the gospel. So that is a very, that's a, that's a, that's a lesson for all of us, as Vita, Vita said. When do you preach the gospel? In season, out of season, always. In sickness and in health when you've lost your tongue and when you've got multiple tongues. You just do it. And, uh, and it was received by the Galatians well because he's, he's now writing to their community.
And though my condition was a trial to you, it was a burden. Let's all be honest. When people come to us and they're not rich and healthy, good looking and eloquent and well dressed, you know, when someone comes to us and they're beggars and and, and they've got no money and they're a bit of a burden, and let's be honest, it's like, oh man, this is a rough one, Lord. What what what's going on here? What does Paul say? Though my condition was a trial to you, whatever happened to Paul, it was not going to be an easy task for the Galatians to, to cure him. They, they maybe had to house him. They maybe had to find some doctors. He, who, he might have been complaining. But he says, you did not scorn me or despise me. Now, if, uh, if Arie was here, he'd probably tell us what the Greek kind of meant there. The only commentary that I could find that described it is if he had come to the Galatian community badly injured and uh, in the presence of a few disciples, probably a little disheveled, not exactly wealthy, the Galatian community could have done like the evil eye hand. They could have said, well, there's something, he's got a demon or something's not right, the gods are cursing him, right? If something was going wrong in a community, you would blame a god, right? And so they would, they would do something that would involve some sort of magical protection, a spell, a charm, uh, a curse, to keep him away. But he says you didn't do that. Could have. That might have been your tradition, but you didn't. You received me not as something demonic, like not as one of those evil guys, but actually as an angel, as, uh, as even the Messiah. That's actually a really nice thing uh, to say. Is, is there a Bible verse that leaps to mind, you know, that they received Paul as an angel? Yeah, you can entertain angels unaware. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes maybe those angels deliberately disguise themselves as people who don't appear so nice. <laughs> You know, inwardly smiling, going, I wonder how Aaron's going to react to this one. (laughs) And sometimes I've had encounters where I go, okay, if that was an angel, I'm talking to you later, okay? When we're in heaven, I have a little chat about that one. Okay. Do you think they were believers when Paul came to them in the state? That's That's what I always got the impression of. Okay. In Acts, he's, he's breaking ground. It doesn't say that other people were there ahead of him, although in terms of timeline, it's certainly possible, okay? but, but there's, no, there's no textual evidence that there is. Paul is kind of implying that he's the father of the community, that mm. he's the guy who, he, who brought the gospel to them. He's the one who planted the faith. He's the one that has been nurturing them in their spiritual growth, and he kind of considers, considers the community very personal to himself. What would, it, what would be the difference if there was a believer there, Vida, do you think? If there, how do you mean if there wasn't? So, so if there had have been a believer when Paul arrived, what would have been the difference? In- no, I, this is what I'm saying. I think that's why they would have received him and, and really gone out of their way ah, to help yeah. another brother. Okay. Because in general, the most even just looking at society today, most non-Christians, if you coming in as a believer because of your faith, they really don't want to know you. It's typically your brothers and sisters that will help you. I mean, right. there are exceptions. Of course, of course. Although, in the, yes, the, the uh, story of the Good Samaritan still demonstrates that 
non uh, non kind can help kind. Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah. But anyway, that what Paul is saying here is, um, I came to you. I had some. I had some massive physical problem. Um, you could easily have gotten rid of me, uh, uh, but you didn't, and you treated me as a very special guest, as a, as a, as an angel. And so, what then has become? Of the your blessedness of this, this status says something has you know, when Paul initially came they welcomed him received him so what's the problem now is that they're not welcoming him as much as they used to something's occurred in the in the gap which is the issue he's dealing with that these guys from Jerusalem have come and really stirred up uh, well actually that was in Antioch somebody is is influencing the Galatians against Paul and against what he's been teaching. And he's taking it um, like personal, really. Okay. For I testify to you, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. What is he saying that for? Aaron, I just want us to get something in perspective that um, Paul has been to the Galatians and he has left. Now is writing. Yep. So it's not there as as at this um, at, with this um, epistle. It's not there. So this is dealing because if you look at it, it says while I was with you with my ailment, it's like um, it's a past tense. But now it's not there and it's writing. So it says um, later that it's being read, but not his presence. And it's dealing with um, you know in absence. You know, it's they're trying to do with issues in absence. We we just have to have that in perspective when we are looking at this text. Correct, correct, because he also, I think later on in this verse, he says, I wish I was there in person to fix, to fix this up. He's having to write uh, in absence and use very strong language to uh, defend his position. So why do you think he would say this thing like uh, that you would give your eyes out for me? They were very generous when they came. You know, he said, you guys didn't hate me. I mean, with the burden and everything, you, you did so much. I mean, out of your uh, poverty, you still took care of me and made me feel comfortable. Yeah, I'm trying to just emphasize that. I've also read some commentaries that say that the ailment actually was Paul's eyesight. He was nearly blind because in many of his letters, he says, look how such large script I write to you yeah. so that you know it's from me. So they, they say that Elman actually was to Short do with side. his sight. Yeah, could be. I read that as well, and I was actually more convinced than the other one. The other one that, that I read was um, it relates to the, the magic spells they could have cast against him had he have been, had they have attributed his ailment to the wrath of a god, you know, uh, like the evil eye, and then you know, uh, trying to play on that good eye, bad eye, evil eye, uh, Hamsa idea that, um, you know, your own eyes you would have given me. I'm not, I'm not 100% convinced. I'm, it's, it's, I'm more convinced with, um, you know, he was beaten black and blue and he's, um, he's got some issue there which may, may deal with his eyes. But anyway, he includes this very cryptic sentence. Paul has a tendency to do that. Uh, every now and again, he throws this sentence in and you scratch your head and you go, now, why did you do that? Because I just don't know. Like that baptism from the dead thing in Corinthians, that, that, that <laughs> book could have definitely done without that verse, okay? Uh, but anyway, verse um, 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
And that's a, that's a, uh, an interesting, very personal statement because if we're all honest, sometimes we don't tell the truth because we don't want to lose a friend. And Paul says, have I become your enemy because I've been telling you the truth? So then go back the other way. Sometimes, if we're honest, sometimes in our community and through history, we have not told the truth because we want to keep a friend. Because sometimes we know that if we tell people the truth, we might actually lose a friend and become an enemy. And I think all of us could probably give an example of times when we know, like, well, if I said this, the relationship would be broken. That's something we all have to work through, guys, if we're all honest with ourselves. We all, sh- we all know we have to tell the truth. Always speak the truth. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. But let's also acknowledge sometimes it's very hard, particularly when it comes to relationships. For Paul, of course, that's not really what he means. What he's saying is he's been telling them the truth, and it's been hard. Okay? And, um, and so there are two Gospels being preached, and people have been, been taking, beginning, it seems, to be taking the other side. And Paul's like, but how can I become your enemy? I was the guy that started you. I was your, we were the best of friends. You even received me when I was, I had nothing to offer. I was beaten up and bad and, and, and bruised. And now when I've got lots to offer you, I'm writing my epistle, yeah, I'm, I'm being treated as an, as an enemy. And then we begin to hear in verse 17 a little bit of information about the antagonist. Not a lot. Still haven't figured out their identity yet. There's going to be a couple of verses in chapter 6 in Greek, which um, I really hope Aria is around, um, uh, that, that begin to shed light on who these people are. They make much of you, whoever the they are. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. Let's try and unpack this. Okay, so these guys, whoever the they are, the ones who are making Paul an enemy, they make much of the Galatians. They've been working on the Galatians. They've been coming in and, and upsetting the Galatians with their teaching and, and sending, sending all things in, into chaos. But it's not for a good purpose. Their teaching and their influence is not, is not a good influence. It's not resulting in something that's positive. Okay, so what, what do some other translations have in that, in that verse? Exclude. They want to, you said, exclude you. Exclude you from what? I would say from the fellowship of um, other believers. They want, they want them to be separated out yeah. for their own purposes. And what do you think those purposes might be? Well, what does the, the Jewish people tend to do? They go out to, in the Gentiles and they make proselytes. Is that not what they're trying to do? Is just add them to their own Get money, add them to their own. Flock. Well, a, pros- a, a proselyte is um, is a Gentile who's become Jewish. Yeah. So, so prior to uh, the, the the Messiah, that's actually a good thing, right? They're, they're sharing the faith in the monotheistic God, and they're telling everybody these idols are rubbish. And people are going, "Yes, I'm going to join the community," and uh, they become Jewish, and so they are known as the proselytes. There are other Gentiles who join the community, and they say, "Actually, I really don't want to do the whole snip and tuck thing." Um, I'm going to stay a Gentile and I'm going to believe in the monotheistic tradition. I've abandoned all my idols. I will show up on Shabbat. I will listen to the Torah, but I can only do half of the stuff that you other guys are doing. 
So they were known as the God-fearers. Okay? Those are the people that we see sometimes in the book of Acts, like Cornelius, who uh, prays, gives money to the synagogue, looks after the poor. Even, even the angels come down and say, we've actually, you know, listened to your prayers and, looked, and listened to your good deeds. And uh, you're doing great. And uh, you really need to get in contact with Peter. We actually have the same issue today in the U.S., in the Messianic communities, you know. Okay. There are some God-fearers. They don't want to convert to Judaism. They don't need to convert to Judaism in order to participate in a Messianic worship service. But they still have this question and this discussion still going on. Yeah. yeah like yeah. Because Jesus, Jesus sternly rebuked the, like the self-righteous, proud Pharisees, yeah. right? So in other words, right. if they're more concerned about loving themselves and their own glory versus true sons of Abraham that live by faith and love God. That's the difference, right? So do you guys call them the Judaizers here? Or what do you guys call them? Like in well, the commentaries I'm reading, the, they call them that. Yeah, most, most commentaries will call them the Judaizers, et cetera, et cetera. Although that's, they're the older ones. Uh, the more the more newer ones, the ones that are looking at uh, the issue, uh, call them the influencers, and try and say what are they trying to influence them to do. And so, uh, I think Vita's what that translation did you have, Vita? King James, New King James. New King James. Okay, so they, the, the exclusion idea, and I think that goes back to um, what has Paul been saying: no one should be excluded. You should Jews and Gentiles, males and females, slaves and free, you all should be included equally. Everyone gets God's righteousness equally, all imputed by God, got nothing to do with, um, uh, with, with you know, the works of the law. But what happened is these influence have come along and they've said, hang on, what are you talking about? We're not equal. You are a Gentile. I'm Jewish. He's not saying you don't believe in the Messiah. That's not the issue. The issue is we're excluding you from table fellowship. You're a Gentile. Can't eat with you. It's got nothing to do with, well, you don't believe in the Messiah, because they do believe in the Messiah. Right. It's got nothing to do with, do they believe in God? They do believe in God. He, what he's saying is, I can't eat at your table. I can't eat your food. And the exclusion idea, and that is so anti the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. Is like, no, 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 no. We broke down that barrier. There, we can eat together. We can have table fellowship. We can pray together. We can marry each other. We can do all kinds of really cool, young and funky things. But these guys are excluding you, and not only that, they're making me into the bad guy. Because I came along and said, no, no, no. We're all the same now. We're all equal. I'm just like you. And now these other guys have come in and said, no, no, no. That's not true. The only way you look like me is if you get circumcised. The only way you look like me is if you start following all these commandments. And uh, Paul's saying that that's not true at all. When we, yeah. when we stand before God, we are exactly the same. And, yeah, the point is to follow Christ that you – so the, the end of my verse, like Vita's scripture says exclude as well, but that you may be zealous for them as opposed Correct. to for Christ, right? So, again, yeah. it's just focus on their religious religiosity. Yeah. yeah, what they were trying to create is a class. They wanted yes. to create a class of um, we are better believers than some other people. We are, you know, we are, we are superior believers by yeah. our gene, by our position, by everything. You know, I, I, I met a, a Muslim once and, um, you know, was trying to describe how they view Arab Muslims. 
uh, the Arab Muslims consider themselves better Muslims than yes, all they the do. Muslims. That's right. For those that are listening in podcast land, Shimshon's a shepherd in Nigeria, and half the country is Muslim, is that right? Yeah, about half the country, yeah. And most of them are Africans, yes? Yes, absolutely. Most of them are so African, African Muslims. So an, an Arab Muslim comes, and instead of saying, we're all Muslims and we're all equal, what does he say, Shimshon? Is that they are better Muslims because they are closer to the lineage of the prophets. So they are, they are, they are higher or closer or holier in that concept. And, um, yeah. and uh, I, I, see, I, I see the way the, the other Muslim kind of just kind of put a big rev, reverence on them. And, you know, because, I mean, they can't be living righteous life. They might not even live as pious as this um, African Muslim, but because of from where they are come from. And so they give, they're giving such a good, um, you know, vision. And I think that is what they were trying to create here. They wanted to create the class thing and which Paul was handled, you know, from the onset, Paul says, be like me and I'm like you, you know, we, we, we're one, you know. And um, now we're seeing that, yeah, that the, the class thing is a problem. It's back. Yeah, and it's a real problem. It's interesting. Um, I, I, I forgot that that's the way Arab Muslims view themselves. Thanks, Shimshan. Yeah, because South African Muslims are even more pious than the, than the Saudis or anything like that. Where Micah is training in his army base, the most pious Jew there is, is the Indian guy, okay, the B'nai Menashe. That guy gets up before anybody else and goes and prays, okay? That guy is the last guy praying. You know, when everybody else is getting ready to sleep, okay? And the typical you know, rabbi probably will go, ah, he's not really Jewish. Like, dude, look at him. He's way better than you are. <laughs> but anyway, so they're, they're trying to exclude them, and this is not good. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Okay? There is value in, in being a good model. I mean, it would be really nice if there was a church that Paul had written to and said, you guys are the best thing since sliced bitter. Let me write a letter that tells everybody 2,000 years from now what a really good church should look like. He didn't do that. That's a shame. But if it would have been good if he did. But it does give us encouragement that as we're imitating the Messiah, we can be heroes to others. We, we can be good role models to others where people can grow up and they say, look, I, I want to I get through my struggles the way you do. Uh, I'm struggling, but I watched you get through yours, and I want that too. Pray with me. Help me get through. When, when, I, was, when I was crying, you came and cried, and I really valued that, so I'm going to do the same. And, um, and so th those are good things. And uh, so he says it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, which would be the gospel and the kingdom. Uh, but and not only when I'm present with you. So he's actually heard that um, you guys kept the faith. When I was gone, you kept going with uh, walking out the faith in the spirit. And then he, in verse 19, he gives you that relationship that he feels. My little children. Okay? He feels like he is the father of this community. He has discipled them. And just like rabbis can call their students sons, he feels he can do the same. Okay. which is probably why he also then calls um, Timothy my son. Okay, Not a biological one, but in terms of um, behavior-wise. Uh, for I am again in anguish of childbirth, not that he actually can give birth, we're talking hyperbolically here, uh, until Christ is formed in you. This is, this is not only is the goal of salvation to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, 
the goal is to look like the Messiah. The goal is to act like him, look like him, behave like him, so that uh, there are lots of little messiahs. And Paul says in 20, I wish I could be present with you now because he's not there now. But he, this is actually, he feels like this is a real pivotal time. And it's a very dangerous time for the Galatians. Somebody else is there talking to them. He can't be there to publicly rebuke them because he probably would. He'd probably slaughter them in a debate. But he can't, he wishes he would be there now and then he could change his tone. So instead of being so harsh, he could probably be a bit softer, a bit more gentle. He could probably pick up the Bible and argue from all the scriptures. But at the moment, he's perplexed. He's, uh, he's struggling. He's, um, th- these guys are probably o- occupying his prayer life for quite some time. Now we break into the allegory. Tell me, okay, who you desire to be under the law. And remember, who wants to be, go back under the guardianship of the Torah? Okay? It's not that we're throwing the Torah away. These guys are reading it every single time they meet. What he's talking about, who wants the guardian of the Torah again? Guys, you had it, but now, now you don't. You got, it, it's, you got it even better. You don't even listen to the Torah. Okay? Why would you want to be guarded by the darn thing? You obviously have interpreted it wrongly. Okay? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Okay? He knows this. They read this. If they're, if they're going through a cycle reading of Bible, they've read this at least once or twice. Okay, okay two sons, one by a slave woman, Hagar, and uh, one by a free woman, Sarah. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the woman was born through the promise. So obviously both are born according to the flesh. That's not the issue. Um, in term, once you start getting into allegory, you begin to get into the more spiritual thing. We know that Abraham was promised by God to have son. He tried to, tried to speed stuff up, okay, um, and do his own thing. And he didn't do it by himself. Of course, uh, Sarah was implicit in this too, husband and wife team. Always good to see a husband and wife team. They make mistakes together, but they can also repent and rise together. Uh, the family that prays together stays together. The free woman is the promise. The promise was always to come through Sarah, Isaac. We acknowledge this. Another community, these Muslims do not. Now this, although we're not talking about Islam, that's what we've we got to remember this. As Shimson said, this is pre-Islam. We're talking about do we accept the promise that God has given or are we trying to make those promises ourselves and, turn, and make them? And, and that's something we can't do. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, and I like the way he does this because this is about the only time he ever does it in, in Scripture, but he, he sets up, I'm actually now going to talk allegory. These women are covenants. So, wow, that's not bad. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing the children for slavery. She is Hagar. So this is the uh, Mosaic covenant, which is already talked about, by the way, but he's got to hammer it home again. Hey, uh, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Well, exactly how far Arabia extends, where, where is it, uh, is always up for debate. But Paul definitely likes to say that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Um, he has hinted that he went to Arabia to be with the Messiah and study. So he probably, well, he doesn't say I went to Mount Sinai. There's an implication that that actually he did. So Haggai is Mount Sinai, and this response corresponds to present Jerusalem. So it's definitely the physical uh, thing. What is it, Rocky? There have been 
numerous sites that were talked about in the Exodus uh, that have been found in Arabia all around the uh, Mountain of Moses, as they call it. The Saudis call it that. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Not too far from Aqaba. Is that the one you mean? Correct. Yeah. That's, yeah. So there's a, there's a, there is a site in uh, just, just, just inside Saudi Arabia um, near Aqaba. Uh, that they call the mountain of of, uh, of Moses, but the Saudis don't let anybody go to it. It's 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 not something we can all go and visit, unfortunately. Maybe one day when we make peace with Saudi Arabia, because uh, they're so afraid of Iran, maybe we can go there. Actually, they, they are have, doing tours there now. Yeah, Who's they the have camp? opened up tours. Uh, they've got hotels and gas stations there wow. uh, that weren't there five years ago. There you go. So you can in the last five years. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, check it out online, guys. See what you think. So back to the allegory. Hagar is Mount Sinai and also present day Jerusalem. So we are just ripping through the allegory here. We go from woman to mountain to city. Okay. All, all in the one center, which is good. And slavery under, under bondage. Okay. The idea of having to, um, I constantly be told what to do. Okay. But, Aaron, yep. can, can I just throw in a thought here? This is actually interesting just to be devil's advocate a bit here, but uh, one of the uh, comments in this, in this commentary was uh, this is not actually an allegory because an allegory is a fictional story where real truth is a secret, mysterious, hidden meaning. The story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac is actual history and has no secret or hidden meaning. Paul uses it only as an illustration to support his contrast between law and grace. Okay. Um, I'm sh- whoever wrote that, uh, maybe they will correct Paul and he can come back and correct his epistle. Um, but he himself is... Calling it an allegory. As yeah, Paul calls it allegory. So, you know, there you go. So whether you disagree with him or not, Paul's thinking he's allegorical. Philo might go, dude, you're not using this right. You know, but anyway, the point is he's jumped from, from woman to, uh, to mountain to city, and then he now goes back the other way by bringing in another city, heavenly Jerusalem, which, by the way, Hebrews 12 already does. Okay, it talks about the heavenly Jerusalem that's above. Uh, Jewish people often talk about the heavenly Jerusalem that's coming. Revelation talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. So that's not something that's unfamiliar with people. But Jerusalem that above is free. She is our mother. This is obviously the, the final destination that we want. And then we start retreating backwards. For it is written, and he brings in a quote, Rejoice, barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, who are even though you're not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be no more than those who are of the one who has a husband. So uh, there are two, two women who are, who are depicted in this prophecy, one barren, one not, and yet they're both going to have uh, children, which is, which is interesting. And the one who, who has a husband will have, uh, uh, the one that should have had been having kids is going to have as many kids as the one that doesn't have a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are the children of promise. So he goes from heavenly Jerusalem to Isaac. This is the son that we're trying to follow, trying to uh, become. We're joining the commonwealth of Israel. We're joining the promise that was given to Abraham through uh, the Jewish people. Were you saying which has a husband? Is that 
We know that Sahagar, the earthly Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem, is that saying has a husband because of the covenant at Mount Sinai where God is seen as marrying the Jewish people, Israel? Yeah, God, God marries somebody and then he keeps attracting more people to this, to this relationship because in the end it, it will always say Jesus is coming for his bride. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and um, so there's always that, that. And this idea that the children of the, uh, are going to keep multiplying and getting bigger and bigger, uh, more than even the woman who should have not been having any is going to um, claim loudly, even though as though she was in childbirth. Well, where are these children coming from? They're coming through faith. They're coming through belief. They're joining the household of God. And Messiah will come for his bride, all of them which is actually a very beautiful picture. Yes, the husband stays the husband and the bride just keeps getting bigger. It reminds me of Hosea, right, where Gomer had to wife, marry a wife of, whor, 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 you know, whoredom. Harlotry, yes. Yeah, yeah. Mine says whore, whoredom. Whoredom, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, she was like, lo ami, right, not my, not my people. And then so beautiful later, he would say, you know, you that were called not my people, you are my people and you, you, and you will say you are my God. So it's, it's, it's beautiful. It is uh, that, that marriage yeah. of coming back and being his people. And also to add there that um, when Paul says um, rejoice, so barren who bears no child was speaking from the prophet Isaiah. Yes. I was quoting from Isaiah 54. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, uh, Shimshon. Isaiah 54 is the prophet that's being quoted here. And so these people remember Paul actually doesn't ever quote Jesus. In that, he doesn't quote a gospel because those books don't exist. He's quoting Septuagint, Septuagint Greek, something that they're familiar with. They're brothers like Isaac. They're children of the promise. The, the, God had promised Abraham before the Mosaic Covenant that all the nations of the world would be blessed. The covenant at, at Mount Sinai doesn't annul the promise. He's already made clear of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And remember, the covenant at, at Mount Sinai was broken even before he got off the mountain. That doesn't mean God said, okay, I'm going to throw everybody away and I'm going to throw my Torah away. No, you, the Torah is still meant to be on your house. So always remember that the covenant was broken and we always needed a new one. And this new one is going to be with the house of Israel, the, as Paul says, those who are under the law. But now this other group of people are going to come in and they are the ones who are, who are part of that promise to Abraham. So here we are. Paul can claim to be a descendant of Isaac, and now he's saying, guess what? You are too, although you're not actually physically, but we're all adopted here, going on to the previous analogy. But just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Did that happen? It implies it. Yes. It does. It implies that those two didn't quite always get along. Right? And uh, you do see the Ishmaelim appear in the text. Uh, uh, oddly enough, they're on their way to Egypt when they go and pick up uh, Joseph and bring him down. Why are the Ishmaelim going to Egypt? Because they are Egyptians, right? Their mother's Egyptians. So they got a relationship with Egypt. They're often running around this, this area. Okay, and, there, and it does imply, yes. And Isaac and Ishmael didn't didn't always see eye to eye growing up. You know, they didn't always play with each other's balls properly. They they were stealing each other's teddy bears and stuff. 
So what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the slave of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Wasn't Ishmael born 14 years earlier than Isaac? Yeah, he was older. Correct. Was 13 years older. 13. And um, it is nice, though, when Abraham dies, Ishmael does come back to help bury dad. So it's not like he stayed out of the family orbit, but he wasn't there to inherit. Uh, he ended up getting his own kingdoms. Okay? He has his own set of 12 kids. And, uh, and he was blessed by God. And he was. This is true. After the near-death experience of um, Isaac, uh, you, you realize in um, Genesis 22, it talks about um, Abraham returning with his servant, but Isaac was not mentioned returning yes. from the mount. So the next time you hear Isaac is that Isaac is coming from the region where Hagar has gone to with Ishmael. So it's believed that um, they, they found um, a friendship in what they have suffered by his father, and uh, which was Ishmael, and also Isaac was now almost killed by his father. So I think they, they, they formed affinity on that and they became close friends. Yeah. yeah. I could imagine what that conversation was. What are you doing here? I know Dad kicked you out, but he just tried to knife me. You know, it's like, not only that, he was talking to God. Um, yeah. It was, uh, but it, the, the text is, is blank on where Isaac went, and uh, he does come back. He does, he does come back from the direction of, um, of where Ishmael is. So there is the tradition that they do make amends, they do get on well, and that they sort of kind of stay in, in each other's orbits and their descendants then do, and hence the, uh, the children of Jacob can meet Ishmaelim and communicate and, and create a business proposition, which is to sell Joseph. The allegory finishes where... Paul says, brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free. Okay? He's just like he's talking about the guardian under the law, the steward, the schoolmaster. He's trying to raise home. He says, you're free from that. That is not what gives you your status. The blood of Jesus gives you your status. I'm calling you my brother. right? I'm Jewish. I'm a rabbi. I'm calling you, some guys who were once pagans, my brother. We are. We are children of the free woman, of Isaac. We are, we are now the commonwealth of, of Israel together. And that is a very big deal. It was a huge issue in the uh, early community, and they didn't always get it right. Okay? And uh, as we can see in, the, in through church history, we were, we were not so good with Jewish believers, uh, constantly making them act like Gentiles. Uh, as initially the the idea was Gentiles need to act like Jews, and then very quickly it switched, oh, no, no, Jews need to act like Gentiles, uh, so much so that we lost that Jewish identity within our community early on. Uh, we have been reclaiming that as, uh, in the last couple of hundred years. Uh, CMJ is part of that ministry in in trying to, uh, bring back an appreciation of the Jewish roots of our faith in, in helping us to follow the Messiah better, to be uh, promoting us to greater works in the kingdom so that we continue to spread the gospel in, in all the territory around the world. To me, this allegory is a very powerful allegory because what it's saying is that 
the children of the free which are in the flesh and the children of the new Jerusalem in the spirit, the, yeah. the one in the flesh will not inherit. It is excluded from that inheritance. And so you have to be children in the spirit. You have to be in Christ. That's what this allegory to me is saying, because they, they, they cannot be part of the inheritance that God's promised. It's, one, so it's, it's a really powerful allegory. Yeah, it's, one, it's one part of it, yep. It's one part of it. Status is another. Inheritance is another. Uh, bonds of friendship are another. Where, where the true place of the Torah is, that's another. There's so many levels that are part of, this, um, of the commonwealth of Israel, of, of what is really the one new man of Jews and Gentiles in the Messiah. Uh, any other comments about, our, um, about Paul's yeah, allegory? Yeah. It is not common that he does it. Sometimes I wish he would do it more. Sometimes I wish he would never do it at all. But anyway. <laughs> um, just to throw this in, um, not very directly connected with the, with the text, but the, the, the midrash on the two sons, uh, a very interesting midrash. Um, one of my teachers, in Hebrew University, Jerusalem, she made a very nice comparison of the um, Yom Kippur goods with the two, um, with the two lads, you know? Um, mm -hmm. The one that falls for Adonai lands on the altar, and the one that falls for Azazel lands in the wilderness. And if you read the story of Isaac and um, Ishmael, Isaac lands on the altar while Ishmael land finds himself in the wilderness and you know the way the old story went you know abraham wakes up early in the morning saddles and it's very interesting excellent that's really good that's very clever there are some good great teachers at hebrew university i, I really enjoyed my time okay guys thank you very much um have a blessed sabbath whatever it is that you do um we are going to be absolutely packed here We've invited half of this community is going to be Jewish and the other half is going to be Arab. Okay, all believers. So, um, yeah, I've contacted the Arab believers and said, hey, um, you're coming. It's going to be Shabbat. Would you guys like to have a Shabbat dinner with us? And they said, yeah, that'd be great. Can we cook? So, yes, that's not bad. Does anyone here want to help lead the prayers? And they said, we would love to. So here you go, guys. We're going to have some Arabs make us a big Shabbat dinner and lead us in our Shabbat prayers here, once again showing you what the one new man looks like uh, in the Messiah. So. That's beautiful, Aaron. Mazel Tov. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube, Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org Blessings from the City of the Great King